0: The Coats and Children's Library at Princeton University Library presents The Bibliophiles. Hi, this is Dr. Dana. Today my guest is S. E. Hinton, author of The Outsiders, that was then, this is now, Tex, Rumblefish, and Taming the Star Runner. In 1967, a new voice entered the world of children's publishing. It was the tough, unfiltered, empathetic, and frank voice of Ponyboy Curtis, the main character in Hinton's groundbreaking and genre-creating novel, The Outsiders. 14-year-old Ponyboy lives with his big brothers, Soda Pop and Derry. They are orphans, and Derry has set aside his dreams of college in order to shoulder the responsibilities of providing for his younger brothers. Ponyboy, his brothers and his friends are greasers, they grow their hair long, wear leather jackets, drive old souped-up cars, and rove in gangs. They also clash, often very violently, with the Socs, the upper-class teens from the West Side, who seem to have it all. When the violence results in a death, Ponyboy and his friend Johnny must go on the run or face the judgment of a system that is already stacked against them. Hinton's characters navigate confusing, turbulent, bleak, intense, and often unfair worlds that were previously unheard of in children's literature. The raw truth of Hinton's novels ushered in a new category of children's literature, young adult fiction. In 1988, she was the recipient of the American Library Association's first annual Margaret A. Edwards Award, an award that honors authors whose books, quote, have been accepted by young adults as an authentic voice that continues to illuminate their experiences and emotions, giving insight into their lives." End quote. It's important to add that while gritty, Hinton's books also carry with them messages of understanding, acceptance, choice, family, forgiveness, strength, and hope. They are both heartbreaking and illuminating, desolate and thought-provoking, frightening and beautiful. In addition to her YA books, Hinton also has a chapter book for younger readers called The Puppy Sister and a picture book called Big David, Little David. Essie Hinton, welcome to The Bibliophiles. Uh, thank you. Many people are surprised when they learn that you wrote The Outsiders when you were 16 years old. What compelled you to write the book?
1: Three things. Uh, one, first one, is I just like to write. I've been writing for eight years. And um, actually, it wasn't the first novel I wrote. It was the first one I ever tried to get published. But I'd been writing constantly since grade school, since I learned how. It's something I just enjoyed. Two, I was mad about the social situation in my high school. I went to World Watchers High in Tulsa, Oklahoma, very large school. The uh, senior class, the graduating class, was the smallest, and it had over 1,000 students. So you can imagine what a—you know—this was a baby boomer school; it was packed. Uh, that didn't mean you could have a lot of friends. As soon as you got to school, you got in your little group, and you stayed in your little group, and you stayed away from all the other groups, which I thought was idiotic. And when a friend of mine, who was a greaser, I grew up in a greaser neighborhood, I got put in uh, what they call college track classes, like Pony Boy did. So I had friends of both sides, but when a friend of mine got beaten up on his way home from school one day, I was, became mad and wrote a short story about it. It was about, ended up about 40 pages long, single space typed. But I um, kept going back over it and over it, and was just really enjoyed writing it. Uh, and the third reason I wrote it was I wanted to read it. When I was in high school, there was nothing being written for the teenagers, except, you know, Mary Jane goes to the prom, and she wants to go with the football hero, but she ends up with the quiet boy next door and has a good time anyway. <laughs> well, I'd been to a couple of proms by then, and the big plot was, uh, you know, who got killed in the parking lot. The subplot was who brought the booze and how did they get it in. So I just couldn't find anything that dealt realistically with what I saw teenage life was like in high school. So that's another reason why I wrote it. And I've learned that a good reason to write anything is because you want to read it.
0: What was the initial reception for The Outsiders like?
1: Um, usually it was pretty favorable. It wasn't an overnight bestseller or anything like that. I went to uh, New York and did it a little bit of publicity for it, you know, radio shows and newspaper interviews. And then I came home and went and uh, took up my real-life thing, you know, went to college and all that. But I didn't have to deal with the pressures. The media wasn't globbing on to everything that could look like it could fill up a few empty spots. And the money built very, very gradually. I think my first oily check was for $10, uh, so I wasn't overwhelmed with that. I wasn't <laughs> overwhelmed with fame. Uh, I had a lot of years as the book gained more and more followers, mostly from word of mouth and from teachers, bless their hearts, who found they could get non-readers to read with it. And it's a, not, you know, it's a great book for teaching. It's got themes. It's got... Characters, yeah, it's got dialogue, it's got foreshadowing. I mean,
0: it's got anything, complexities.
1: Yeah, but it's on a simple enough level that any kid can grasp what's there. So, uh, teachers love it. Thank God they do. But I, you know, I've, I tried teaching, I couldn't do it. I don't have the nerves for it. So, <laughs> anything I can do to help teachers, they're my heroes. I'm, you know, I'm glad it worked out both of us.
0: Your books played a major part in sparking a new genre of children's literature, non, uh, young adult fiction. When you published your first few books, did you realize you were on the cusp of something groundbreaking?
1: No, but I knew there wasn't anything out there that I wanted to read as a teenager. And I, I just wanted something realistic out there. And when uh, it was originally and paperback just published as a drugstore paperback where it kept coming back, you know, in boxes because nobody was buying it. And somebody just happened to look at the sales and realize it was selling really well in one section, which was, you know, teachers using it for classrooms, teenagers. So that started a whole marketing niche for what they called young adult books and um i think uh dell's first printing especially for that genre was called Laurel leaves and then they had a lot of really good writers come along and write for that genre so it 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 did there are plenty of books published before that nowadays we might think of as young adult you know even huckleberry finn might be you know categorized as young adult catcher in the rye, but all of a sudden they realized there was a separate market aimed at these particular buyers. And it did start that.
0: Horses feature in many of your books. Soda Pop is attached to a horse called Mickey Mouse. Dally, Jockeys, Tex and his brother Mason, they both ride. Travis works in a stable. Can you describe the role horses play in your books?
1: Well, I'm a horse nut. I've always been a horse nut. I had to uh, wait till I was an adult to buy one because my family's, oh, you'll outgrow it. And we couldn't afford it anyway, to tell you the truth. So um, I just quit riding a year ago because of back surgery. Every time I swung my leg over my horse, I think <laughs> I outgrow it. But um, I took my last 75 Dollars out of the bank when I was twenty, and bought a uh, thoroughbred colt and raised him from a four-month-old till he died my arms at the age twenty-three, and I've never been without a horse since. I still have three. This <laughs> <laughs> is kind of sad because I don't get to ride them anymore, but I still enjoy them. So horses have always played a really big part in my life. Really big. I mean. I don't know what I could have written if I would uh, quit showing the year I was writing uh, *Taming the Star Runner* and devoted myself to more books. But uh, so it's you know it's nice to work them in.
0: You've said that *Tex* is your favorite young adult book. Why is that? Right.
1: I just I have to become my narrator when I'm writing a book. It's like an actor. They know the whole screenplay, but while they're doing the movie, they have to be a person, which is always the way I've written. And uh, the book before that was Rusty James and Rumblefish. And oh, God, I was so, I felt like I'd been banging my head against a wall for a year writing that book. And I actually wrote, started text when I was still working on the galleys of Rumblefish. I just wanted to be somebody for a change and he is the least tough but the strongest of all my YA characters. You know, it was really great to have that generous heart for a while and he um, was just a very pleasant person to be even though he's having his trials and tribulations and I think it's a really good character study. I mean, Tex is my favorite character besides being my <laughs> favorite uh, book.
0: Can you share a couple of things you've done to uh, immerse yourself in your character's world, sort of like an actor preparing for a role?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I usually start off by knowing everything about my characters. their astrology signs and what they like to eat for breakfast. It doesn't matter if it shows up in the book or not. But you know, I, I know the details, and then I go in to being that person.'s the only way I can describe. It's one thing I loved about reading from the beginning. You could be so many different people. You could go to so many different places. You could bungee jump into the future. You could <laughs> go back to the ancient times. I, I mean, uh, sometimes people say, well, what writer really influenced you? And it wasn't a writer. It was the act of reading that influenced me.
0: So your protagonists are all male. Right. Um, why do you prefer to write from that perspective?
1: Well, I grew up with guys as friends. Uh, my cousin, Jimmy, who the Outsiders is dedicated to, and he and I were not quite a year apart, and we were raised more like brother and sister than, than cousins, and I hung around with his friends. I couldn't identify anything in the, with, identify with anything in the female culture then. You know, you got your status from what kind of car your boyfriend drove. I didn't care what my boyfriend or didn't even have one for a long time. I wanted, you know, the cool car myself.
0: <laughs> right, exactly.
1: <laughs> and and to this day, my, my close male friends outnumber my close female friends about, you know, I've got twice as many close guy friends as I do close female friends. I like hanging out with guys. There's no undercurrent of, I don't know. There's so many things about the female culture I don't get. But, <laughs> but you know, guys are quite a bit less complicated.
0: In Taming the Star Runner, Travis is 16 when his book is accepted for publication. And in the last chapter, he's editing his work. He's mostly doing technical and uncreative things. And so you write here that for him, the, quote, Novelty of the editor's marks had worn off, end quote. And he just, he just wants the book to be done. He's not living the book anymore. He wants it to be done. And I thought this was an incredibly interesting glimpse at the less glamorous realities of writing. And yeah. I was wondering if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about what it's like to work with an editor at a publishing house and how it's changed for you over time.
1: Well, I was lucky enough to only have one bad editing experience, and I'm not even going to go into that because it doesn't even have anything to do with the books we're talking about. But um, I learned so much. My first editor was Velma Varner, Viking Press, and, and you know, another legend I got to work with. And her notes were so great. She sent me about three pages, and they were very specific, which is, like page such and such all of a sudden dallas has a gun can you know put it in earlier that he has a gun so we're not all surprised he's got a gun. yeah and it was mostly like you do not just need to describe these guys you know every couple of pages you've done that real well just leave out descriptions and and on page such and such uh this doesn't tie in with it. I mean, very, very easy. It was three pages of notes, but they were easy to follow, easy for me to correct. It wasn't rewriting me. There's not, you know, some people go, oh, well, her teachers must have wrote that book for her. There's not a word in The Outsiders that I didn't write. And none of my editors have written a line in my books. But... I prefer that specific kind of editing to a very vague, well, I don't know, it's kind of missing something. You know, great, it's missing something. Tell me. <laughs> Tell me what it's missing. Tell me what I need to go do, which I've had both those kinds, which, you know, I much prefer. Now, that was then I wrote two pages a day. I was in dealing with writer walk after The Outsiders, and I was very careful about each sentence I put on the page, trying to correct everything, that, at the age 20, when I read The Outsiders, I was very, very critical of it. You know, now I've learned to love it for what it is, but at that time, I was going, oh, God. So I was trying to correct every mistake I made in The Outsiders, but when I sent it to my publisher... They said, Well, we're glad to see that college education hasn't ruined your spelling <laughs> and nobody offered another word of advice on editing. It was I, I had already edited as I worked on it.
0: That's interesting that you think the outsiders is flawed. I think oh, it's yeah. I think it's nearly perfect.
1: As an adult writer, I see ever you know, I see tons of things wrong with it, but that I wrote it at the right time why I get so frustrated with people nagging me for to do a sequel. I couldn't even by the time I wrote that was in, I couldn't have written The Outsiders. I wrote it at the right time in my life. I wasn't expecting anybody to read it. I wrote with the emotions of a teenager. You know, the absolutely naive, idealistic frame of mind that they all have. And I mean I've talked to some of the toughest schools in America and I haven't found one yet that didn't have some glimmer of idealism, which is one of the main characteristics of the Outsiders. So I'm glad I wrote it when I did. I'm very proud of the effect it's had, not just on America, but all over the world. I get letters all the time like, well, I didn't never enjoyed reading, but I really liked your book, which is, you know, it's great. Yeah. But the letters I get... Your book changed my life. I'm looking at life a lot differently. I'm studying my own behavior different. I'm behaving differently. I'm looking at my fellow man different. I mean, that kind of response scares me. Because <laughs> it might have changed anybody's life. But I've come to the conclusion that the others are well written. I'm proud of them all. But The Outsiders was meant to be written, and I got chosen to write it. Way I can deal
0: with it. These days, it's almost inevitable that a popular best selling book will be made into a movie. But in the 1970s and 80s, it wasn't so common. There's a really interesting story as to how The Outsiders became a movie, which was directed, I might add, by Francis Ford Coppola. It's a testament to the fierce loyalty readers feel for this book. Could you tell us the story?
1: Well, uh, Francis got a letter from a school in Lone Star, California from some kids, saying, this is our favorite book, and you're a great director, and could you make it into a movie for us, which, which kind of got him interested. He loves kids. And uh, at first, it was bought just for a property, for Zotrope, you know, for, to be developed to be for the studio. On an airplane, Francis it himself and decided he wanted to do it himself, and um, came to Tulsa, and I met him, and we scattered locations together and auditioned some actors together and, you know, really hit it off, really, really hit it off. And he said, well, I'm going to shoot it here, and uh, can you help me with stuff? And I said, Sure. In, you know, scout locations and with wardrobe, I had my fingers in about every piece of pie there was on that. Uh, when the boys came to town, Francis was uh, having some problems. He was on the phone a lot and he'd say, oh, can you go run lines with the boys? And I said, sure. So I got uh, met all my outsider's boys I'm very close to even today. And, oh, God, they were fun kids. They were so sweet. They were—they inspired me a lot for Travis and Tanya the Star Runner in that, off-camera, they were just goofy teenagers. They were they were always scaring the hell out of me, <laughs> running around, jumping downstairs with their switchblades <laughs> open and stuff like that. And But when they got in front of the camera, they turned into serious actors, and it was an amazing transformation to watch because they were talented artists and they were goofy teenagers, which I tried to capture in Travis quite a bit.
0: Was it strange to see these actors portraying your characters? And I'll add that these aren't just any actors. They include C. Thomas Howell, Matt Dillon, Ralph Macchio, Patrick Swayze, Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Tom Cruise, Diane Lane. Well, no, because they weren't
1: stars yet. I still feel so lucky that I got to know them before they were. You know, they had no defenses up. Matt was the only one that had any kind of uh, reputation. Oh, God, we know Cruz was going to be big, though. <laughs> he had a very small part, but he made the most of it. And when we were doing improv, he would just be over the wall. And when they were doing stunts, he, could, he was absolutely fearless even then. So, yeah, we, we all knew Tom, but his best manners, so polite. My husband still remembers him mostly for what great man. We had him over to our house. And they shot pool and ate pizza and stuff. And So, yeah, we were all, they all bonded with each other too, which is nice. There was no backstabbing. There was no falling into different camps or anything. They were just so gung-ho. About everything. I can't, you know, I can't describe how great they were. It was amazing.
0: What are some of your most memorable letters from fans?
1: Well, they're the ones that I'm most protective of because, you know, I, I, I get them from prison, I get them from all over the world, I get them from people that grew up in circumstances. Like the Outsiders boys did again from people who Indonesia, which you think would have no corresponding society to identify with, but they do. It's it's the ones that say you changed my life. It's um, overwhelming. I mean, it's I'm going. I didn't change your life. The book changed your life. Just like I said, the only way I can deal with it.
0: I'd like to end by asking you a question about the Robert Frost poem that appears in The Outsiders.
1: Okay.
0: In the midst of the chaos of the book, this beautiful poem is recited by Ponyboy. To me, it was, it was a real surprise in the book. He's a really tough kid. And up until this point in the book, we've mostly heard him speak in slang. So there's no preamble or grand buildup. There's, there's absolutely no pretension. It's just a smart kid with a tough life who's dropping his guard for a moment and letting his mind shine out. And I'd like to recite the poem and then have you talk about why you decided to include it in the book. Okay. This is Nothing Gold Can Stay by Robert Frost. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf. So Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down today. Nothing gold can stay. Uh, well,
1: I was wandering around in my creative writing class, and they had magazines out there. And I picked it up, and I found that poem. And I thought, well, this is trying to say what I'm trying to say in the book. Although I couldn't give you a uh, description of what I was trying to say in the book. So I went home and wrote it into the book. But as you know, Ponyboy's a reader. I don't think it would be totally unheard of for him to have come across that poem and remembered it, because he said when he first recited it to Johnny, he said, I never forgot it because I couldn't quite figure out what he meant, but you know, it stayed with me, haunted me or something. And that's the way I felt about the poems. So I went home and I was thinking, Now this has something to do with what I'm trying to say in this book. So I wrote it in. And um you gotta remember, I I was sixteen when I wrote it. I actually began it when I was fifteen. But then my junior year in high school was also the year I flunked creative writing.
0: So that's the year I was writing it.
1: But um <laughs> You know, it just struck me. So I, I wrote it in. It's, I wasn't taking, you know, how to structure a novel. I came across something that I thought fit in the book. I'd go home and write it in the book. Like the kid who dissects his worm with a switchblade. I mean, okay, we'll just have, have Boy do that. So... Um, but, you know, it's gotten to the point where... People think I wrote the poem, which I can tell you is not the worst thing that can ever happen to a writer.
0: <laughs> Do you just sagely nod your head? <laughs> I go, no, that was Robert Frost. Uh, Essie yeah. Hinton, thank you so much for coming on The Bibliophiles today.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having
0: me.